0: In the Tanya, where the Alter Rebbe, Shneir Zalman of Ladi, explains how every Jew can serve God with heart, with love, and with fear, even though not all people are equally endowed with an appreciation and understanding of God's greatness, and not every soul is equal in its ability to make real what we know about God, And if we don't make it real, then it can't produce a love in the heart because the heart responds only to that which is tangible in the mind or tangible to the person. So not all people are going to be equally capable of loving God. How then does the Torah say, how does Moshe say to the people, it is very close to your heart? The Rebbe gives a number of explanations, then tells us that there are two kinds of love. There's a love that we create, by our knowledge there's a love that we generate through our own efforts we cause ourselves we bring ourselves to love but then there's a love that is involuntary that comes to us from the outside and this is called a reciprocal love reciprocal love is the nature of the heart to love back when we feel that we are being loved and this can even happen unconsciously we may not even know we're being loved but we will love back the person who loves us and since god loves us and chose us and came to us and initiated the relationship with us what we need to do is simply love back and that is very close to every heart it's almost irresistible so unless we have no heart at all there will be a reciprocal love if we simply allow it. And that reciprocal love is even truer and in some ways greater than the love of the great sage whose love comes from what he knows and understands, which is awesome and impressive, but ultimately limited. A human being is limited, whereas the reciprocal love is a reflection of, where we reflect back the love that we are being shown, and that love has no end. We spoke about this subject at a Beishana lecture called What has Love Got to Do with It? Here's the talk. What has love got to do with it? Anybody? Everybody complains about the lack of love or the lack of loving or that there's not enough love, not enough loving. We want it, we need it, we complain when it's not there. But did you ever take a course on it? Did you ever try reading a book on it? It's a neglected subject and yet it's so vital to life. And we basically ignore it and depend on instinct or on reflex or on some primal knowledge to help us find love and to help us do the loving and give love and receive love. And I think it's safe to say that it's, it's not working. It's not happening. I think it's safe to say that we're a very lonely generation. We travel a lot, we see a lot, we have many friends, we're very sociable, we're cosmopolitan, and we're lonely. How does this happen? So really, what has love got to do with it demands some kind of study, some kind of examination, some kind of education. What is love? Not the poetic, the everyday. What brings love? What prevents love? What do you do if you don't have any? What do you do if you don't get any? What do you do if you've never seen it in your life? You wouldn't recognize it if you did see it. Why is this subject of all other subjects so Neglected. Do we have nothing to say about it? Is there no literature, is there no wisdom on the subject of love other than poetic descriptions? Are we afraid to study it? Are we afraid to find out what love is because that, <laughs> that might lead us to the realization that we've never had any? That would be scary. Are we afraid to delve into this subject the way we're afraid to delve into Kabbalah? Oh, we were afraid. Now we won't do it because it's got a bad reputation. You know, if Madonna and Roseanne are studying Kabbalah, it's not for me. Keep it. I don't like the company. But is it a frightening subject? Is it too close to home? Is it too close to the heart for the mind to be able to handle objectively as the mind handles all subjects? That's probably true. It's so important to us that we're afraid to look at it in case we don't really have it, because that would be devastating. We had a group of teenagers, Beis hana for three weeks. What was the main conversation? What was the main issue? What was the main theme? Parents. Something so common and so plain and so obvious and so necessary and so vital. How do you feel about your parents? They couldn't answer the question because they couldn't look at the question. But when they did, they were pleasantly surprised. Because if they really wanted to, they discovered that they could love their parents and that in spite of whatever else was going on between them, they could identify and recognize at least some kind of love that they are receiving from their parents. And once the subject stopped being so frightening, it became a welcome conversation, comfortable conversation. Remember? So let's, let's just study. Let's just talk about what is love, and then you'll be able to figure out whether it has anything to do with it or not. What do we know about love? Number one, and this is not uh, taken from books on psychology, It's taken from the Torah and primarily from Hasidic sources. Number one, love is the first of the seven emotions that a human soul contains. In most cases a reference to emotions in the plural is represented by love. Because love although it's only one of the seven, the first of the seven, but it is the major ingredient of the heart. The heart are the emotions. So when you say love, you're talking about all of the heart's activities. Love comes from an attribute. It is the product of the attribute of kindness. The soul contains kindness because It is a piece of God. It's created in the image of God. And God created the world with kindness. But when you develop the kindness, when you personalize it, because kindness is very indiscriminate, personalized kindness is love. Make any sense? Understanding kindness helps us understand love. Kindness is the desire to give, and it comes from the assumption, from the mindset that everyone deserves, that everyone is equal. This is in contrast to judgment or severity, which assumes that nobody deserves until proven otherwise. You want to get paid? Do the work. Kindness says, everyone is equal, everyone deserves, and I want to give. I want everyone to have everything. This has to be the first impulse in all of creation, because basically, God creating the world was a giving. The world didn't deserve to be created. The attribute of justice said, don't bother don't create, what for? So the creation had to come from kindness. The problem with kindness is that it's indiscriminate. Without kindness, nothing would happen. If you didn't have kindness in your soul, you wouldn't hate anybody. You got that? Because hating somebody means recognizing them, being affected by them, responding to them, except that the response is a little negative. But without kindness, you would never get that far. The other person wouldn't exist in your world, would not exist in your life. You certainly wouldn't let them get to you because who are they? So even to hate, you have to have a certain amount of kindness. Even to judge, you have to have a certain amount of kindness. So kindness is the first instinct or the first impulse in creation because without that, nothing gets started. If we teach a child to be kind, we prepare the child to be capable of loving because love comes out of kindness. If we work at kindness, then we are better At loving if we don't work at kindness we'll find it hard to love later on we teach a child to share and you think that's a good boy you're sharing that's a good boy no that's a good husband (laughs) start young when you teach a little boy to share you're making a husband out of him it's an investment in the future an important investment if you teach a child to be considerate of other children. You're teaching him how to love when the time comes. They may even love you when you're old. So it's a very good investment. Again, the problem with kindness is that it's indiscriminate. you got to be nice to everybody. You have to be kind all the time. Well, maybe not all the time. <laughs> But in order to not be kind on occasion, you need a whole new attribute. You need the second attribute of the divine attributes that says, put a lid on it. Because naturally, kindness goes on forever. A kindness that is within itself limited or restricted or conditional is no kindness at all. Kindness is unconditional. And if the kindness must stop then you have to bring in a police force. You have to bring in the attribute of severity to put a stop to the kindness. Because in the kindness, there are no breaks. And that's why if we raise a child, getting off the subject a little bit, if we raise a child only with kindness, but not with discipline and not with judgment and not with an expectation of moral and and decent behavior, we will destroy the child because the child will have no breaks. So kindness by its very nature is indiscriminate and unconditional and cannot stop itself. It has to be stopped by the opposite attribute. When the kindness becomes focused and personalized, that kindness transforms into love. And so in Hasidic terminology, ahava, love, is the internal form of kindness. Internal meaning personal, intimate. When kindness becomes intimate, that is love. Even if it's not spiritual, before we get to the holy part of it, just human nature, which is not spiritual. (laughs) In the human soul. When the kindness is internalized, uh, personalized, becomes intimate, that is love. The inner dimension of kindness. What is the nature of love? The nature of love is the desire for closeness. That's what it is. Love is not a condition or a state a fixed state, it's a pursuit. The feeling of love is the desire to get closer. And no matter how close you are, love is always a step ahead of you, looking for more closeness. That's love. When you have a relationship with someone and you don't want to get closer, you still may be kind, you may be nice, you may be considerate, You may be a perfect gentleman, but you've stopped loving. Love is the desire to get closer. And that desire cannot be satisfied as long as the love is active. That's why absence makes the heart grow fonder. Because love means reaching across whatever distance there is in order to attain greater closeness. So when you create a distance, when there's an absence, the love becomes activated because there is a visible, tangible distance to overcome. I want you back. Or like the guy said to his wife, how can I miss you if you don't go away? (laughs) Go away, I'll miss you. So when we create a physical distance, it's very easy for the love to be activated to reach across that distance. Maybe that's why couples sometimes get into fights, because there's no distance between them. And so the love kind of recedes to the background, and you want to reactivate it, so you start a fight. Love is not the same as pleasure. Now, there are times when the person you love The love of your life is not the pleasure of your life. And there are times when the pleasure of your life is not the love of your life, because they're really two separate things. One of the differences between love and pleasure is that love is a pursuit and can and does intensify with the absence of the beloved, of the one loved. You can't have pleasure in the absence of what gives you pleasure. That's known as pain. (laughs) When what gives you pleasure is not available, it doesn't intensify your pleasure. It causes pain. So pleasure is an experience that you have when you are joined to the object of your pleasure. Love is activated when you are separate from the one you love. And that's why God asks us to marry cross-gender. Men marry women because you're supposed to love each other in marriage. So you have to marry someone with whom you will always have some distance, like man-woman. That gap is unbridgeable. And so it will provide Opportunity for love Even for 110 years Some of the lessons in the Torah Get overlooked But they're really blatant It's like um, Yitzchak married Rivka Rivka came To Yitzchak They were married And the Torah says And he loved her But how old was he? He was 40. Well, what's the lesson there? Not too late. It's not too late to love, even if the first love happens at 40. We can assume that he loved her for the rest of his life. He lived to be 170. Can we assume that Adam and Eve loved each other? (laughs) Who else was there? Red button says, quoting Adam. A famous quote from Adam. What do you mean the kids don't look like me? (laughs) (laughs) They live to be 970. Can you love somebody for 970 years? Maybe that's why we don't live that long anymore. (laughs) So the difference between love and pleasure is that love is always seeking the object of of its love, its object, whereas pleasure functions only when you have it. And that's why constant pleasure is no pleasure at all. Tainukt midi, ene tainuk, A constant pleasure loses its pleasure because when love has been around for 50, 60 years. The person you've loved who was the love of your life eventually becomes the pleasure of your life. And that's why people who were married 70, 80 years can't live without each other. Do they love each other? They don't remember. (laughs) Literally, literally. If one of them is gone the other one is gone because the pleasure of their life is missing. So it is very possible for someone to be the love of your life and not the pleasure of your life, but we need to understand the distinction and we need to know the difference. One of the conditions on which love depends, the soil that is appropriate for love without which love cannot thrive is joy. And here's where we get very entangled and very confused. As you you suggested in one of your points of wisdom. How do we do this? Do you find someone you love and that brings you joy? Or do you have joy and you share it with someone you love? Chicken or the egg? Same question, over and over again. Do you wait until you're happy before you love? Or do you... Love and hope, it brings you happiness. Happiness is a precondition for love. In a state of happiness, your emotions are released. They can function. They can express themselves. In a state of sadness, the emotions are crippled. You can't feel, you can't emote, you can't express. So, you cannot wait for love to bring you happiness, you have to bring the happiness to the love. A person in a good mood loves everybody. There was a, I don't know if it was a Broadway show or just a record or an album or something, but the title of it is, When You're In Love Everybody's Jewish. (laughs) You remember that? It was a record. What does that mean? When you're in love, everybody's Jewish. (laughs) it's really not right when you're happy everybody is lovable that's I think the correct version because when you're in love everybody's Jewish means when you're in love everybody's lovable but that's not true I hope that's not true it's not that when you fall in love with someone everyone becomes lovable that doesn't lead to monogamy But when you're happy, everyone is lovable. Also when you're happy, every sadness is painful. Because in a state of happiness, all emotions are intensified. Or not even intensified. All emotions are what they ought to be because you're not blocking them. Sadness blocks our emotions. In fact, the reason we get sad is to block our emotions. When you know you have to deal with an intense emotion, you become sad. And that way you don't have to deal with it. Because sadness numbs us to our own emotions. And of course when it becomes chronic, that's depression, and then we feel nothing except anger. Which is not a real emotion anyway. We can do without that one. So joy is really giving your heart permission to feel. Making it safe, if you want to put it in psychological terms. Making it safe for your heart to feel. That's joy. And when it's safe to feel, you will feel more love, you will feel more pain. You will be sadder at your friend's misfortune than your friend is, because she's sad. So she's not feeling her own sadness, her own pain. Whereas when you're not sad, you feel her pain more than she does. (laughs) <laughs> Does she believe it? <laughs> you know, people would ask about the Debu. It was part of his job to bring joy and enthusiasm to the people. It was also part of his job to respond in writing or orally to people's pains and people's sorrows and people's problems. And how did he do this? How did he spend his entire day reading letters where people pour their heart out their broken spirit, their, their, their suffering, their, the horrors of their lives. And then at night, come out and fabring, and sing, and say l'chayim, and be enthusiastic about life. The answer is, when you feel the pain of others, you're not saddened. Sadness prevents you from feeling the pain of others. The pain that you feel doesn't sadden you it intensifies your concern for life and then you channel all of that back into your joy of life and then the joy of life enables you to feel more keenly other people's pain and it flows back and forth this way and that's basically what they call the dance of life love kindness and severity love and tragedy or pain but they feed each other they don't destroy each other so the more willing you are to feel someone's pain the more willing you are to love them and it should be the other way around too the more willing you are to love someone the more willing you should be to feel their pain to share their pain what is the greatest obstacle to love what prevents people from loving You might think that an angry disposition, hateful people don't love, not true. People who hate the most also love the most. People who love the most also hate the most. They're two sides of a coin. So what prevents love? What is the obstacle to love? The obstacle to love is self-love. The more we love ourselves, the more unwilling we are of loving others because our love is spoken for. The more you love yourself, the less available you are to marriage, because you're married. If you take your problems seriously, you're not capable of sympathy. That's rather obvious. Oh, you think you have problems. That's a problem? (laughs) New Yorkers boast about their problems. That's no problem. I have a problem. So, what is that? The guy says, you know, last week I I skidded off the highway and ended up scraping the car on the side. Scraping the car. I ran my car right into the tree. The third guy says, oh, yeah? How high up the tree? (laughs) Self love is the obstacle to love for the very simple reason love means a pursuit of closeness. The desire to get closer. Self-love precludes that. Self-love means I am enclosed within myself. I'm not going for closeness. I'm not looking for closeness. And therefore I'm not capable of this thing called love. There are two kinds of love. And we need both in the course of our lives. There is the initiation love. And there is the reciprocal love. There's a time when you initiate love, and there's a time when you reciprocate with love. They're two very different emotions. You can be capable of one and not the other. You can be better at one than the other, but you need both for the right occasion. The right love for the right occasion. There are times when you have to initiate the love. That takes a talent very different from the responsive love, from the reciprocal love. In our relationship with God, we have different instructions and expressions in Torah that describe these two different kinds of love. There are times when we speak about loving God as a commandment. Love God your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is not in response or in return for God's loving us, but we should love him because he is great. He is great, he is awesome, he is infinite, he is true, we are not, he is forever, we are not. To initiate love is a different challenge, a different talent than to respond to love. Reciprocal love is almost involuntary. If someone loves you, it is the nature of the human soul to love back. If someone loves you, you can't help but love back. In fact, it might even be said that if someone loves you, you love them back, even if you don't know it. Because your soul knows it. For example, a child loves those who love the child, and the child doesn't know about love, is not conscious, yet he returns the love. The reciprocal love comes in different sizes, depending on who is loving and who is being loved. If a king shows love to a simple commoner, the reciprocal love will be much greater than if a king shows love to a great minister. The minister's reciprocal love will not be as intense because the distance between them is not as great. The complement of the love is not as great. But when you feel that there's a person who is much, much better than you, much wiser than you, much more worthy than you, And that person loves you, that intensifies the love. Which means, one of the differences between the initial love and the reciprocal love. In the initial love, you have to feel justified. You have to feel entitled. Who are you to love that person? What makes you think that person cares for your love? So you have to have a sense of of worthiness. You have to have a sense of entitlement that your love will mean something to the person you're going to love. Reciprocal love has no conditions. A person can't say, I know you love me, but I don't deserve to love you back. On the contrary, the more I'm convinced that I don't deserve, the stronger my reciprocal love will be. If we have these two kinds of love, then we cover all possibilities. Because within ourselves, there are two sides. There's the side of myself that feels entitled. I'm lovable. My love is worth something. Anyone I offer it to will accept it. And then there's a side of me that feels my love is meaningless. I don't mean anything to anyone. I haven't earned the privilege. Of being loved or anyone accepting my love. Both are true. The Gemara says that Mashiach will come either to a generation that is all worthy or to a generation that isn't worthy at all. And there's been an ongoing debate as to which which way we should go. (laughs) Should we try to be a generation all worthy and bring Mashiach that way? We've tried that, it didn't work, so maybe we should try the other. Let's all get together and work at not being worthy at all. Maybe that'll bring Mashiach. But the truth is that the Gemara is not saying that it's either or. The Gemara probably means it's going to be a generation that is all worthy and not worthy at all at the same time. And we fit that description perfectly. Because both things are true. We deserve everything. And we deserve nothing. In God's love for us, these two kinds of love exist. And that's what the Gemara means. God will give us what we yearn for, will give us a a world, a life, that we all hope for and dream of and work at, for two reasons. He'll give it to us because we deserve it, and he'll give it to us because we deserve nothing. He will give it to us because we love him in response to the commandment, and he will give it to us because we love him in response to his love, the reciprocal love, which means from our strength and from our weakness, either way, we love him. And because of that, he will send Moshiach because We do deserve and because we don't deserve. There's a love for both halves. We deserve because we're here. We deserve because we're Jewish. And that's no easy thing at this late stage in history. We deserve because we want to be Jewish. The Daniel Pearl syndrome. We may not be good Jews, but we are very strong Jews. For that we deserve. For the fact that we're not good Jews, for that we deserve nothing. So we are the best of generations and we are the worst of generations. And for both of those reasons, God will send us Moshiach. So what has love got to do with it? There are times when love really has nothing to do with it. There are times when all of this is irrelevant. Are you capable of love? Have you experienced love? Do you know how to receive love? Do you know how to accept love? Do you know how to express love? Do you know what love is? Have you studied it? Do you feel it? Are you happy enough to be able to love? Are you too sad to love? Sometimes none of that is relevant. You're talking about kids with their essays. They had a contest how to make it through school successfully. And there was one kid who won the prize because it was really well-written, eloquent, wise. But they wanted to give a second kind of a prize. I don't know what that, what's that called? Uh, Yeah. They really wanted to give the prize to another kid, but they couldn't because his essay was too short. He had basically written one sentence. To succeed in school... Shut up and do your homework. You can't argue with that, but it's a little too short. (laughs) You know, sometimes in a relationship, in a marriage, between parents and children, there is love, there's no love, you're showing your love, you're not expressing your love. Sometimes, just shut up and be nice. What's love got to do with it? Sometimes we have to reach back to the origins of love, which is kindness. So if you don't have the profound feeling, the profound inner aspect of this attribute, well, at least have the outer, earlier manifestation. Kindness. Now, that means like this. Love is a function of the heart. Kindness is more a function of our behavior. It's not how you feel, it's how you do. Is that what the expression, how do you do, means? How do you do? What does that mean, how do you do? I mean, you're asking a person how he's feeling. What does doing have to do with it? How do you do? How do I do what? But that really is the question. You're married, how do you do? Not are you in love. If you're married, how do you do? Because the doing, which is the behavior, is sometimes more important to the marriage than the feeling behind the doing. I think Abraham Lincoln uh, is credited with this wise statement. Well done, is always better than well said. When I would come late to school, (laughs) when I was uh, old enough to make my own way to school, I would come late to school and the the Rosh Hashiva would say, where were you? And I would give him a good excuse. The buses in those days were hooked up to the uh, trolley lines and And every time they made a turn, the thing came down and the bus driver had to run outside and hook it back up. So I told him it happened 12 times. (laughs) And that's why. And he would always say, that's a good reason. But if you had been there in time, it would be even better. If you didn't need a reason, it would be even better. So well done is always better than well said. But I think the same can be true of emotions. Well done is better than well-intended. Your feelings were right. Your heart's in the right place, but well done is better. So sometimes in a relationship, love has nothing to do with it. You are not kind to your spouse because you love them. You're kind because kindness has its own validity. It doesn't need any justification, and it doesn't need any profound motivation. Kindness is what created the world in the first place. Kindness is the beginning of everything. To say, I won't be kind unless I love, this is destruction. This is the opposite of creation. In a relationship where love must exist, should exist, will exist, there are also moments when we need to have some resources other than love. Love is a delicate thing. It needs a setting to protect it. It's a fickle thing. And it should be. If you love someone constantly, in the same way and to the same degree, day after day, you need professional help. (laughs) There's a technical term for that. I don't know what it is but it doesn't sound nice. (laughs) That's a fixation. That's not love. That's not an emotion. An emotion is fickle. It has to be fickle. It's like the flame on the candle. If it stands still, it's painted on. It has to rise and fall. It has to blow with the wind. It's got to be alive. And you can't always have that. So as a support for that, a safe context in which that love can exist and flourish, you have to have the doing. The doing is called in Hasidus the garments of the soul. It is not like an emotion which is the soul itself. It's the garment of the soul. And a garment is much more external, much more dispensable, disposable than the soul itself. But on the other hand, Because it is not your soul, it can be more consistent. It can protect the soul. It can elevate you to a level of of commitment, to a level of connectedness that the soul itself may not even be capable of. Because I can only love you as much as my love will permit. So as much as I love you, It's really me. I love you only my way. How else can I love you? I love you only to the degree that I'm capable of. How could I do it otherwise? I love you when I'm capable. And that's why in every love, there's a certain amount of selfishness. It's my love that I'm offering to you. But when it comes to the garments to the doing. I can do for you what you need done and I don't need it at all. I can do your deed. I can think your thoughts and I can speak your words. Why? Because they're garments. I can take them on. I can take them off. They can be my garments. They can be your garments. They can fit me or they don't fit me. It doesn't matter. I can wear them. I can step into your shoes. To use a more familiar. Why? Because shoes are garments. I can't step into your heart. Although poetically that would be a very nice thing to do. But I can't. I can't step into your heart. But I can think your thoughts. I can understand your thinking. I can put myself in your thoughts' shoes. And I can speak your words. And I can certainly do your deeds. And then, I am more available to you than when I'm loving you, because when I love you, that's my thing. That's me.